Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space and welcome to episode 146. My guest in this episode is David Epstein. And David Epstein is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And you can think about this from my perspective as a physician who practices more of a general type practice as a hospitalist, as an internal medicine trained physician, and the obvious tensions that arise in my profession where we are becoming more and more hyper-specialized. So when I saw this book and had the chance to read it, the email to David went out really quickly. This conversation is as great as you would hope from somebody who is as well-versed, as dynamic, and as engaged as David is. And I will just say this, his perspective on burnout, its causes, and the concept of match quality is some of the most exciting thinking I have heard around burnout in a long, long time. This was really, really interesting. There's some really powerful stuff in here. The book range is just phenomenal. And we get into the book a little bit. We get into all kinds of other incredible things that he's looking at and working on and reflections on our profession. And I will just say, there is a chapter that he has got on the B-sides. There's a chapter that he's got in his files, and we need that chapter. You'll understand what I mean when you listen to the episode for sure. Before we get to the episode, just want to remind everyone, please do take a look at the archive for Explore the Space at www.explorethespaceshow.com. It is packed if you like this type of conversation with someone who is really smart and really enthusiastic. You have come to the right place. That is what our archive is all about. You can find me on social media at Explore the Space Show on Instagram, and I'm very active on Twitter as well, at ETS Show. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com, and you can find Explore the Space on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Definitely subscribe. If this is the first time you're checking out our show, welcome. Subscribe because we keep the content coming and there are new episodes every week. Some weeks there are two, some weeks there are three. But the most important thing to understand the content is evergreen. You can come back to it anytime. You can look around the archive. You can pull out the ones that are important to you and really just have some fun and, and get the most out of it that you can. If you have the opportunity to leave us a rating and a review on whichever podcast platform you like, that is really appreciated. It's a great way to help other people find the show. Speaking of the show, this episode with David Epstein is really fun. It is really interesting. Match quality. I've been thinking about it just continuously since he introduced me to this concept. It is absolutely fascinating. Without further ado, David Epstein. David, welcome to Explore the Space. This is exciting. I've, I felt like you wrote this book for me. I'm, I'm a little. I'm not that narcissistic, but I read this. I said, "Oh my goodness gracious!" So I appreciate it. You responding when I reached out. This is great to have you. No, no, I did. I, I wrote it just for you. So <laughs> that's I'm awesome. Glad to be here. Yeah. <laughs> no, thanks for having me. So this is why I say I felt like you wrote this book for me. When I say me, I kind of mean it as representing the profession of medicine and this concept of specialization versus generalization, this concept of how deep should we go into one thing, at which point in our lives should we dive into it. Your book is, it's so fun. It goes in so many different directions, but I will offer to you and I want to ask you, when I read it and I was done, I felt like you walked into the lion's den 
with respect mm-hmm. to this topic in medicine. Yeah. And just sort of thinking about medicine specifically, because you touch on a lot of different fields, including medicine. How much did you sense the the world of the physical life sciences, the world of medicine was going to read this book and say, you, you're, you're talking to us? I I thought that was going to happen, um, but I, for better, but probably more for, well, I don't want to say for worse, because if it generates a discussion, it's good, you know, a meaningful discussion and a civil discussion, then it's good. So I expected uh, feedback from the medical community for sure. I was hoping to get some positive. I was definitely expecting criticism um, from the medical community, probably more than anywhere else. And I actually had a full uh, chapter about medicine that I decided to get get rid of for reasons we can talk about, but maybe I'll add some of it back. So yeah, so I expected criticism, but I, which is sort of why I made sure to say, I think late in the book, you know, in, in medicine, increasing specialization has been both inevitable and beneficial in many ways, but has also had some side effects that I think can be perverse, particularly when we put specialization in kind of zero sum competition with with uh you know more zoomed out look or generalization or or kind of keeping our eye on the outcomes people actually care about so some of the things that actually one of the ways i got interested in in looking deeper into specialization was when i was at propublica i wrote a story about standard practices in healthcare that have been overturned essentially by much higher levels of evidence than they ever got implemented uh, based on in the first place, but that continued to become, be standards of care or even get more popular. And one of the things I realized in looking at those was um, it, it usually wasn't because of any, you know, no, no one's bad intentions or anything, but it was often that specialists were so specialized now they were looking only at surrogate markers, essentially. So looking at some small part of the organism and assuming that it's a proxy for the outcomes they actually want. Uh, so a simple example, you know, would be lowering blood pressure and your assumption, what you really want is that person, you know, people to die, uh, less from heart attack and stroke. And it turns out that with some of these medications, people die at the same rates of heart attack and stroke, just with lower blood pressure numbers. And there are so many of these surrogate markers in medicine where people were looking at a small piece of the puzzle and assuming it was the proxy for, for the broader outcomes they want. And sometimes it was, and sometimes it wasn't. That kind of got me interested in some of the unintended uh, effects or sort of loss of perspective in, in medicine. But I was also aware that because specialization in medicine is also important and conferred many benefits that I was setting myself up for some criticism and just hoping that, that some of the discussion that came out of it could be uh, productive. You, 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 with intent or simply because of subject expertise, mastery and insight, stepped into one of the really central tensions of our profession – and it's this idea of what you just described. We are becoming in medicine more and more specialized to the point where when I was in training, which was not that long ago, the specialties that existed then are totally different. I finished my residency in 2006. The training for oncology, the training for critical care, the training for all the different branches of surgery are really different because they have to be so much more honed. Mm-hmm. And then the people who go forward, their practice is that much more honed because the science behind it is more honed. This is all good stuff, right? We When we we do this because we have papers and we have studies and we have techniques that we can demonstrate, reduce morbidity, reduce mortality. That's the whole point. But it does raise attention because when you become this specialized, are we sacrificing slash losing 
other skills that help us take good care of patients, that help us lead our teams, but are we losing skills that help us take care of ourselves? Yeah. This is a really important question and a really important tension. And that's why I said, I felt like you wrote this for us because that's what we're really trying to unravel that throughout the book, you're, you, you give us this sense of that, the, the diverse lifestyle, the explored years, the, you start the book off talking about how you were in a tent in the Arctic, right? (laughs) Yeah. 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 This is the one that will afford on a population level, more success, more excellence, more expertise, more happiness. We're wrestling with that in, in the work that I do. Yeah. And I should say, I I don't purport to, to give a perfect answer. I mean, this question of how broad or specialized to be obviously is domain dependent, Yes, but also, you know, I think it's, I think it's, the reason I wanted to take it on, even though it's kind of amorphous and it was a challenge for me even to sort of define the playing field, basically, yeah. um, is I think either implicitly or explicitly, it's a conversation that's important to everyone at some point or another, but that we usually only have based on intuition pretty much. And my hope is just to kind of, you know, the, the best I can hope for is to make those conversations, bring some material to it that makes those conversations more uh, interesting and more productive. And that's about the best I can hope for. Yeah. Um, and, and I found, you know, I find, you mentioned surgery, right? So surgeries, I, I, I try to give, I, I was happy the NPR review of my book noted that I, I, I repeatedly give credit to dissenters where credit is due, kind of. And not at length, but I kind of stop and try to <laughs> try to point out that I don't think specialists are bad. But surgery is an interesting one because it's so clear in results that specialized surgeons have fewer complications mm-hmm. in their procedures. And, and what I was surprised to see was that Specialized surgeons, it, it's independent. If you control for the number of times a surgeon has done that procedure, a specialized surgeon still uh, has fewer complications. There's some benefit about being specialized in a surgery that isn't even just from having done it a lot and whatever that is. Like we can speculate. I'm not sure. But at the same time, seeing material that showed uh, specialized surgeons were also more likely to do procedures on people who didn't really need them. Um, or to resist dropping procedures that were shown no longer to be effective. And it was really interesting to go and look in like specialty journals. So one of the studies I mentioned in the book was this kind of famous one uh, in Finland on partial meniscus repair um, for non-acute injuries, just for knee pain. And the trial looked at sham surgery. So some of the people got, uh, you know, an incision and the surgeons bang around like they're doing surgery and just sew them back up and send them to physical therapy. And they did just I love as well. The choice of words, because you can make, make the argument with orthopedic surgery that they're banging around them. <laughs> right. That maybe that's what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, All due respect, because they're brilliant and they're gifted, and they'll they'll relish that terminology as much as I did. Yeah, and I, I know I'm getting into into. I gave a talk at an orthopedic for my last book at, at yeah. an orthopedic surgeons conference, and one of them <laughs> told me afterward. He told me this joke. You know, we were like grabbing a beer at a bar, and he was like, "How do you know when an orthopedic surgeon walks into the bar?" I said, "I have no idea." He said, "Oh, he'll tell you." <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, so I'm definitely setting myself up with a tough crowd. I love it. I love it. But you're gonna get a lot. Of, you're gonna get a lot of tweets from the orthopedic surgery <laughs> great, community. That's great. great. Um, no, but I mean, I, I love them. They do amazing stuff. And you can even look at things like in our shared interest in sports, right? Like things like an ACL used to be potential career ender. Now yeah. it's like, all right, you know, this guy's going to be out a couple months. Like, that's right. That's right. Incredible advances both in, in the surgery itself and in the and in the rehab. And that's just wonderful and deserves credit. But it was interesting to look at after studies like that one on this, you know, that 
meniscus repair in certain circumstances where it showed, hmm, you know, we're, we may be doing a lot of unnecessary surgeries. And you go and look at some of the, the more generalist journals and they're wrestling with that evidence. Then you look at the specialist journals and they're like, yeah, no, that's nonsense. You know, like we've all seen it work and everything. Yeah. And so it was, which is not surprising, right? That happens in tons of domains when something seems totally plausible, right? And this is what my friend Mike Joyner at the Mayo Clinic calls bioplausible, right? Someone comes in with knee pain, they get imaging, they have meniscus tear, you fix it. How could that not be the cause? But it turns out that like half of middle-aged guys have some tear in their meniscus and it's just not the cause of their knee pain in many cases. So if you just brought them in with no knee pain, you'd see all these all these just incidental tears. And so it's just interesting to see to see that reaction in sort of different segments of the healthcare world and realize that, you know, there need to be some bridges between between the people who are broader and more specialized if we really want to get the best of both worlds. So let's look at that idea of bridges because one of the things that you talk about in the book, you reference a lot of people who did things sort of before who are now looking back in retrospect. One of the ones that for me was striking was that one person, Professor Flynn. And there's a line in the book that I wanted to dive into with you. And I, and I, I'm doing this more and more when I get to speak with authors is the, the lines that make me close the book for a second. Cause I have to think I want to pull <laughs> this one back out. So I'm on page 90 okay. professors. He told me are just too eager to share their favorite facts gleaned from years of acceleratingly narrow study. Now, here's why that resonated with me. When I was a resident, when I was a medical student, I would have the opportunity to round with extraordinary physicians, talented people, published, all of the accolades that come from a career well spent doing two things, taking care of people and pushing the science forward. But you see in those moments with them, that exceedingly narrow study. And that then frames the worldview for generations of people coming up behind them. That stuck with me because we're in this place getting back to that tension that you and I were just talking about. Are we setting up our learners, medicine or otherwise, our children, because you spend a lot of time in the book talking about that as well. For me, that was a really important point. When we have the opportunity to mentor, to teach, and when we're in a position where we're learning, do you have a sense, having done the study and written this book, is there a best practice? Is there, is there a, a, a best approach when you have those limited times? Should we be giving the acceleratingly narrow study or should we be providing a worldview that's a little bit more broad or is it a mixture? I, I think – I mean I think it's a mixture but I would lean more toward – at least starting broad, broader okay. than we do now. And by okay. the way, you just reminded me of something that uh, another thing I cut, which is, is some interesting research showing that when very prominent researchers pass away, there's like an explosion of new ideas in the field, which is really interesting. So it's huh. like people who make these big contributions is great, but then they often end up reviewing everything, you know, and anything that doesn't kind of agree with what they've already done, they can really cause like a cinch in the hose wow. um, for other ideas uh, if, if they want to. And I, I think that's Apparently, sometimes the case, but my I think this relates to another idea in the book, this question of how should we start? Right. One of the things that I really wrestled with and ultimately decided to include with the book in the book was my own confession that I think the published research on which my my master's in geology was based is wrong. And I think that's because, you know, that's when you mentioned I was living in a tent in the Arctic. That's what I was doing, some ecology and geology research up in the Arctic. And, you know, I was rushed into this pretty specific study of things like Arctic plant physiology. 
so I was learning a lot of this didactic material, but I had never learned how scientific research is supposed to work, right? How to evaluate evidence. What are the statistical programs where I'm just hitting enter and running uh, some stats program on this huge database? What's actually going on there? Yeah. And, you know, how, how am I actually doing more tests so that like P less than 0.05 is actually not sufficient because I'm doing 100 different tests, not one. And so I only realized that later as a journalist writing about poor scientific practices and, you know, starting to realize like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Some Am I the archetype of this? Right. Yeah. Um, and so, so it's like whatever. I still tell people I have that master's degree, even though I'm, I'm pretty sure that the research it's based on is is false and still published. And so, I really think it's weird that I had to learn how scientific thinking is supposed to work as a journalist instead of as a grad student. And the same thing was happening all around me. And I think that's very much how we got to this so-called replication crisis, yeah. right? where there's this huge amount of work that isn't replicating a lot of it very famous i think there was one of these studies was in cancer right it was like 53 studies and like six of them replicated or something yeah. like that famous studies in cancer research and and i think you know sometimes there's sort of warped incentives but i think a lot of it all the other grad students were doing the same stuff that i was doing and i think it's much easier in the age of big data and computers you can get a huge database you can run complicated statistical programs where you don't really know what they're doing so you're not totally sure if you're applying everything appropriately and you're going to get statistically significant results, of course, and you're, you're going to publish those and you don't really know if it's true. And so I think, I, th I think being zoomed out and having a view toward how do we even decide what constitutes evidence um, is really important because I think part of what's coming out of the replication crisis is this realization that a that most of the scientific community doesn't entirely understand how scientific methods and scientific thinking is really supposed to work if you want to do reliable research. That's the that's the line that the headline makers are going to pull out of this podcast and put us on blast for. Well, but it's well, a but fair that, that's point. That's why I, I made sure to confess my, that I did it too. Because I yeah. decided that if, you know there was going to be criticism. I wanted to say I, you know, I was part of this, and it wasn't bad intentions. It was. You know, I was encouraged as soon as I started grad school to pick off some area so narrow that nobody else really cared about it, to be yeah. quite honest. Right. Yeah. It's like get you have to do something nobody else has done. And that's usually often because, like, nobody bothered. And and I just did not I just didn't understand how to evaluate evidence in, in the ways that were needed for that kind of work. And that's really, you know, and I could have kept doing that and kept yeah. publishing in that same way, which is how we sort of got here. And so, I but I felt so, it was important to confess. It is, and it's so, and then it, it it segues into another crisis that we're dealing with in the, particularly in the world of medicine, which is around our physician workforce and the issue of burnout. And a couple mm. of weeks ago, I sent you an article on yeah. Twitter by Robert Pearl around specialists in medicine and rates of burnout. But I want to go a little bit further upstream because we're on this subject matter of burnout and specialization and we talk about it you know you and i have both seen it just over the course of our lives you've seen it and you write about it how increased specialization in sports and sports training leads to burnout and there's some mm -hmm. obviously you and i can both go through the list of of athletes who have really just flamed out in the public eye and mm -hmm. it can be really tragic do you have a sense of the way that we push our workforce towards specialization in medicine is that a driver of burnout or do you think it might be something where recognizing that agency and professional satisfaction is a mitigator of burnout? Is this a tool that may actually help us deal with burnout? I, I, I think that here's where I think sort of that that's a great question. And, and obviously I think it'll be 
different for different people. But here, here's what I think is sort of the big picture to consider when we do that is that a lot of the people that are getting pushed towards specialization, um, you know, and, and I think this sort of gets to the Roger Tiger thing at the beginning, yeah, the beginning of the book, that. right? Where, where I absolutely was not intending to make the argument that Tiger Woods should not have specialized early as he did, right? He, he got to the top like that, that worked for him. Uh, Roger Federer was different. He dabbled in like a dozen different sports uh, and, and he delayed specialization. And that turns out to be the norm. And that, that doesn't mean that the tiger path doesn't work for some people. But I think I, one of the one of the major themes to me in the book was the importance of so-called match quality, this term that economists use to describe the degree of fit between someone's interests and abilities and the work that they do. And as one of the researchers told me, when you get fit, it looks like grit, meaning when you get someone with good match quality, you get them in work that fits their interests and their abilities, they start to display the characteristics of grit, even if they didn't so much before, where they're more resilient, they have a better work ethic and things like that. And I think part of that is really because when you get them in a spot that fits, they're less likely to burn out because they're not kind of fighting against themselves to do everything they have to do every day. And so I think where specialization can really contribute to burnout is if is if it means you're pushing people to pick something before they really know what they should be picking. And then they're going to be more likely to get in a situation where they're going to feel burned out. And and we see evidence of that in other in other areas. So like, you know, in I mentioned the tiger, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, the, the famous famous book, and her book was excerpted on the Wall Street Journal is the most commented upon article in the history of the Wall Street Journal. And the first page of the book says, here's how you raise successful children. And she assigns her daughter the violin and, you know, lords over like five, six hours of practice a day. And everyone remembers that part. But nobody remembers the part later in the book where her daughter says, you picked it, not me, and quits, right? To her credit, she included that in the book, but nobody yeah. remembers it. Yeah. And that turns out to be exactly indicative of studies that look at burnout in young musicians, the most reported you know the most commonly reported cause is that the instrument they are learning is different from the one that they want to be learning right so someone's preventing them from changing and so i think it's an issue of they were forced to specialize before they figured out what was a good fit and so they're more likely to feel burned out and similarly in the study where the economists looked at the higher education systems in England and Scotland which are similar except for in England they have to specialize a little earlier and in Scotland they can keep sampling and delay specialization. Well, it turned out he said he wanted to find out who wins this early year late specialization trade-off. And the early specializers jumped out to an income lead, not so surprising because they have more domain-specific skills. But the late specializers got to kind of figure out better where they fit. And six years out, they fly past the early specializers, and the early specializers end up quitting in much higher rates. And so I think all of this is, is sort of suggestive of the fact that if we're forcing people to specialize so early in a way that gets them into something that that sort of doesn't isn't sustained by their their abilities and their interests, then they're a lot more likely to get burned out. So this is one of the smartest takes I've heard on the subject, and so I'll thank you for it. Oh, thanks. This idea of match quality. It is as as we're speaking, I am reshaping how I visualize this model, and I will share with you my thought process, and I'll ask you to chime in. I'll submit to you that because of the rigors of getting into medical school and the choices that you make and the amount of barriers and accelerants along the way, the, most of us have that match quality for the profession of medicine when we go into it. 
Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we would step aside and do something different. This mm-hmm. is not universal. I'm not going to say that it's 100%, but I will say as a generalization of the draw to go into medicine, recognizing it's going to be hard. You're going to not sleep some nights. You're going to, you know, there's the, there, you may accrue a lot of debt. It's very, very challenging. You'll be dealing with life and death. You'll be dealing with blood and guts. That match quality, we can not take as an assumption, but that it's, we're building towards it at the very least. As we go into our careers, we demonstrate that resilience. We demonstrate that toughness. And I'll submit to you in a lot of previous episodes of Explore the Space, we've talked about this issue of resilience as it relates to burnout. And I get pissed because I'm resilient as hell. I don't need to be more resilient. My teammates don't need to be more resilient. This isn't about changing the worker. It's about changing where they work. Mm -hmm. So let me submit to you this. If we recognize that for most physicians, that match quality of going into medicine is there. Is it the insertion of an outside force going to interfere and then be a driver of burnout? And that outside force could be anything. It could be the rigor of outside life. It could be the electronic medical record. It could be Hmm. a delay in their training. Could that be the stick that gets in the wheel? I, I think it definitely could be. And I think, you know, I think your perspective on that is more valuable than mine for sure. But but that definitely resonates just with anecdotally, like, you know, my friends from from college who ended up going to med school. Right. And, and I mean, I think medicine's a pretty co- objectively cool profession. <laughs> um, it is. And, it is. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. It's really cool. Yeah. And but when I looked at, you know, some of them wanted to be pediatricians or they wanted to right. be family practitioners or they wanted to be something else. And and they wanted to spend time with patients, I think. <laughs> and I would say very, very few of them ended up doing that. Yeah. And some of them ended up in, you know, urology or dermatology, which is great. Like we need those. But I don't think most of them felt that that was where they were more inspired. It was they along the way started to feel that doing something more general was one less lucrative and two less prestigious. Um, and so they were being sort of pressured to, to, to pick a specialty and, and get going. And I think they, a lot of them end up getting to, for a variety of reasons that, that you know better than I do, getting to spend sort of less time interacting with patients than they had wanted really when they got into the business. You just described um, that quote that I gave to you earlier, right? Professors are too eager to share their favorite fact in years of acceleratingly narrow study. When you, you know your your mentor is going to mentor you, and they're going to mentor you on what they know. And I think that what you just described is right, and that is definitely one thing that can pull people away from where they were. But I would also suggest that outside influences, aside from the professors, aside from the mentorship, whether it's good, bad, or otherwise you mentioned things that take you away from that purpose, which one of the things that makes medicine cool is we get to take care of other human beings. It's the things that keep us from doing that. And I wonder if that might be the, is it, is it other technologies becoming so specialized that then interfere with something that is much more basic. You and I sitting together and discussing a problem. I I think that's definitely part of it. And I think when you talk to doctors and I talked to and, and like, even I, w- I was just talking to um, a very prominent cardiologist uh, at Columbia the other day, and and what I found interesting in our conversation was we were talking about 
some of the difficulties of figuring out if a certain treatment should be used, you know, that, that he was talking about like kind of over treatment basically, uh-huh. but thinking that instead of swinging to the other extreme, what you need to do is sort of figure out who this treatment actually works for instead of just doing it on everybody. Um, and every time he was saying, he's like, yeah, I can do this because I've known this patient for years. So when they have a chest pain, I can say, is this one of your usuals or is it something different? I say, oh, this, this is just one of the usuals. And, and every time it kept coming back to these sort of human factors mm-hmm. that, that allowed him to differentiate it was he, he had known somebody for, you know, a certain amount of time, like he could judge how panicked they were, um, you know, or he likes to bring them in with their spouse because like that sometimes helps them get more information. And I just thought it was so interesting that it was kind of contact over time with his patients that he kept referring to as really the differentiator and his ability to figure out when he should be using certain things. And and I think some of the push toward these more specialized technological tools, not to mention like the burden of dealing with, you know, I'm, like sometimes electronic health records, even though there's a lot of potential, I think maybe it's not always implemented as well as it could be. That was I, generous uh, of you. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> Um, yeah, I think I was at a hospital a little while ago where there was like this really fancy scheduling system for yeah. nurses with all these like color coded digital screens. And I noticed that they were actually only using like the handwritten whiteboard that was like just <laughs> down the hall from it, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah. But yeah, you know, it's all those, all those other pressures that I think sometimes purport to like replace that sort of human stuff that the doctor does. And I think that's a real mistake. Like, I think that's a mistake of the idea that this like very specialized technology can replace some of the things, you know, if you, if you cobble together all these different specialized technologies, somehow they will equal the human doctor. And and I think that's, I think that's very much a mistake. I think that's the same mistake that IBM made with their supercomputers, right? Where they have Watson can destroy in jeopardy. So they move it into healthcare and it's total disaster. Because it, you know, we know the answers to Jeopardy, and it's a very specialized kind of tool that absolutely does not and did not replace doctors. And I think there's some reckoning about that right now. We're going to walk that road together over the next 10 to 20 years, because as has been discussed on this podcast and has been discussed in other places, that exact narrative is happening. Physicians can be replaced by X, Y, or Z. It raises every alarm bell that I have. And for, for a whole host of reasons, but one of them is exactly what you just described. And that's going to be a tension that we walk together uh, without a doubt. And it's, it's very real because the hype machine that accompanies these specialized tools is, is just it, – it's, it's a monster. It's, it's an absolute tidal wave. Totally, totally. This I'm I'm constantly talking to Mike Joyner, this physiologist and anesthesiologist at the Mayo Clinic, who's kind of a good conversation partner for me. We talk about this all the time that that we think this is very similar to, you know, um, kind of turn of the millennium where there were all these promises about. I, I think Francis Collins said maybe it was 2003 where he said 10 years from then we'd have like you know be carrying around our genomes on a yeah. like microchip in our wallet or whatever, and right. the doctor would just walk in and present it, give you personalized treatment. Like, you know, nowhere close, obviously, to that. Like, things turned out to be a heck of a lot more complicated (laughs) than than that thinking. And I think we're sort of in that phase right now with some of these technological tools um, where – you know, th- there's this this idea that like, oh, it's going to replace all this stuff, but that just absolutely underestimates the the complexity of these situations. What I liked about the book and the thing that I took away from it the most, and that you know, just sort of the worldview that you're presenting that I liked as a physician, as a relatively new dad, and as someone with hopefully a lot of a lot of, of track left to run on, is that 
the underlying premise of this work is diversity, is a broad palette, is trying different things, failing at some things, but getting it out and experimenting, not to the point where you're a dilettante, but where you to the point where you are very versatile, where it's a term mm. that I like and I use on the podcast a lot, to where you're pluripotent. You can do lots of different things. You mm. couldn't mm. have written this nice. book if you weren't that person, if you hadn't had that experience in a tent in the Arctic and then gone through the experience of becoming a parent and been an, an elite athlete. You couldn't have written a book like this without that background. And I think that that is that's, – that's, that's proof of content right there. I appreciate that. And I should say I was a sub elite, sub elite athlete, but, um, but I appreciate that. <laughs> um, I, I don't know, man, running the 800 meters. I'll, <laughs> that's tough work. That's tough sledding for sure. <laughs> it was tough. I'm, it's so nice that I, I never have to throw up anymore. <laughs> I don't run anymore. Just a nice change, lifestyle yeah. change. No, but I mean, for sure, but both of my, both of my books have had some degree of kind of exploring my own questions, right? So that, yeah. that's, that's kind of the match quality issue for me is, um, when I was in grad school, I did start to realize, my work was getting so narrow so quickly and you kind of ask yourself, am I the type of person who wants to spend one thing learning, you know, my whole life learning one thing new to the world or shorter spans of time learning things new to me and, and synthesizing and translating. And, and I was the latter. And I realized even as I got into writing, if I was working on projects that weren't so meaningful to me, you know, sometimes you do that because it's a stepping stone or you're honing your skills or, or there's some other, you know, reason to do it. But when it wasn't that and it wasn't a project that I felt was impactful, uh, I become a lot less patient and a lot less uh, resilient for that sort of thing, you know. And and so if I'm going to take on a project like a book uh, to have good match quality for me and to keep me gritty, it, it has to really be something that's genuinely interesting for me. And so both my books have come out of, you know, the first one was basically a list of questions that I had about the balance of nature, nurture, and sports that I, from my own sports participation experience or spectating. And this one, you know, with my own zigzagging career, and there were certain points where I started to wonder, like, is there something wrong with me because I keep wanting to change direction? Or even after my first book where the advice was, write the sequel. I don't even know what that means. Yeah. But that was the advice, write the sequel. You know, it was being told you'd be an idiot to let it be five years before you have another book out. And, and it was six, in fact. And I'm totally happy about that because I needed to to generate another question that would sustain me that way. And it yep. very much came out of my own zigzagging career and wondering if I was an oddball or not. And it turns out I'm, I'm not so much of an oddball. What I'm finding, and it's a, it's a parallel discussion of what you just so eloquently and for me satisfactorily described, as I've diversified my own plate of interests with – the podcast, the guests that I get to speak to. And that's why I think I take the approach of on this show as I do with lots of different guests talking about lots of different things. It circles back to the central dogma. I think it makes me a better doc. I think it makes me a better leader. I think it makes me a better husband and friend and dad because I think it, that match quality that you described, I have a sense of satisfaction that's different. So when there's a clinical conundrum that I need to step through with a patient and their family, I feel just overall better equipped to do it. We may not even get to the right answer, but the process will, we won't be grinding on each other. We'll work together. We'll communicate properly. I have different resources to access if I need help in all of these other facets too. And so that's, I think, what really spoke to me, both in the text and the subtext of the work that you've done here is that it, that sort of approach that we can really validate it, not just because it makes everything hunky dory and, you know, it's warm and sunny every day. But it, 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 it improves performance. 
And that's an interesting and, – and two things here. First, it's an interesting point that you made about having – you know, broadening your your network and your knowledge essentially, so you have more resources to draw on. Because if we're in, you know, what what I call, but it's not my term in the book, wicked learning environments, yeah. where you can't count on work next year looking like work last year necessarily, you can't be self contained, right? Or if you are, you're not going to do as good a job. Like you're going to need to draw on other people. Um, and and so I think that's such an important thing, right? And I think that's one of the differences between dilettante and and what I call someone you know who has range is. Uh, dilettante may be someone who's just like not that interested in anything, right? They're not right. making that that big an effort to diversify that network that you can draw on for knowledge. So I think that's a huge advantage of diversifying what you do and particularly diversifying it. Like in this podcast, I meant to ask you how you decide to start this podcast. But if you're engaging someone like me, obviously you're reaching outside of your the core of your normal network. And the core of your normal network, you probably share a lot of knowledge with those people already. And so by setting up something like a podcast where you're reaching to people outside your, your core network, even if they're still in medicine, you're, you can't help but kind of diversify the knowledge you can draw on because you're reaching out to people who don't uh, overlap with your life and professional experience as much. I think that's really cool. And so I was curious if you could talk a little bit about how you decided to start the podcast because it's yeah. obviously extra work also. It is. No, it is extra work. I appreciate you saying that. So the podcast itself came out of the love of storytelling. And I've always loved audiobooks and things like that. And I was an early podcast adopter. One of the things that helped me actually get into the having my own show was getting out, getting past a technological barrier where I felt like I'm never going to be tech savvy enough to do this. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to, you know, old Mark would have hung or, you know, much younger Mark for a better way of phrasing it would have hung back and said, nope, too hard, afraid of failure, don't want to try it. it. It wasn't that hard. Um, and so I was able to move through pretty smoothly. And then that you can put in your pocket is, Hey, I did that. So the next time I can remember, I can do something. Um, and I think you talk about that in the book too, that when you're looking for range, you know, you, you were in a tent in the Arctic and you recognize that all the work that came out of it may not have been successful, but it was successful because you had the experience, you did it. Mm -hmm. And that's really valuable. So then going forward, it's this idea of what do I want to have the show on as you and I, as I shared with you before we started recording, I was really intentional about wanting as broad an audience as possible because I want to talk to a broad variety of guests. I I don't think I realized it when I was doing it, but I want that range. I want that diversity. One of my favorite activities to do is to just get a group of disparate friends together and sit at a table and say, all right, what are your ideas? What are people thinking about? What are you working on? We're not all in medicine, but we all do all sorts of different things. And it's just that idea of putting out ideas and figuring out ways to collaborate this space has really become that for me where I've been able to do and learn and connect with so many different people and it excites me more and more. So when I see your book and I can trust that if I reach out, what's the worst that's going to happen? You're either going to say, thanks, Mark, but no, or you're not going to reply. Well, that's not a big deal and I can, I can handle the ego hit. <laughs> but most of the time people say, sure, let's collaborate. Let's have that conversation. And so now for me in the last 40 minutes, You've reshaped how I conceptualize the concept of match quality and burnout in medicine. And I'm grateful for that. And I can carry that forward. That will make me a better leader. That will make me a better colleague. It'll make me a better mentor. There are tangible benefits that come out of this very, very quickly. And so that mindset, I, I like the term growth mindset. I hate platitudes and I like growth mindset because it is fitting mm -hmm. of being able to expand, being able to send out the amoeba tentacles and take other things on board, it's really valuable. It's really exciting. 
I, I really appreciate that. I'm sure you're overstating my influence, but I appreciate that anyway. <laughs> um, I but, don't know. I, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to sit with that term and think about it a little bit. It, it really resonated with me. I think it's a really intelligent perspective and it's, you're not a physician. You're not as steeped in the conversation. It's an outside look. It doesn't diminish the problem. You're not saying physicians are weak and why are you burning out? It's saying, I recognize that there's a problem. I'll share a, I'll share a perspective based on expertise we can't ask for much more than that. Yeah. And you, you made a lot of interesting points there. And by the way, just in burnout in general, when there's like a large amount of burnout, I, I, I don't like, I think in the past I was more liable to say like, well, you know, strong survive. That's good. And as I've gotten older and more perspective, I think when you're having huge amounts of burnout, you need to examine your systems, right? Because yeah. It's, it's not, and if, if other people are getting too run down, even if they're making it, like that might not be good for performance either. So like you should be wanting to maximize performance, not, not have some sort of just like, you know, Machiavellian system or filtering or whatever it is. But you made, you made a couple interesting points. First of all, if, uh, if you haven't heard of Ben Franklin's Junto group that he started, it sounds like the group you have with your friends. You'd probably love reading about it where he would get together a disparate group of friends. And I think one of them would have to just like, give a report on some subject and then they would all just discuss. And he thought this was like massively important to, to cultivating his intellect. I'm not familiar and I'll be Googling it as soon as we hang up because that sounds awesome. J U N T O. Um, and you mentioned the, the technological barrier, um, initially that you got over. And I actually think this is one area where the current world, um, really allows people to be, broader than than they have to be you know than is just necessary because you can think of things like well like podcasts have exploded so lots of people are having conversations with people they wouldn't have otherwise because the technology is pretty straightforward or think of things like website i mean not that long ago you had to you know know html to build a website now you don't have to know any html whatsoever to build a website and if you have good aesthetic taste, there's a whole bunch of platforms you can like move blocks around and stuff like that. And you don't yeah. have to know any of that that language. And so I think those are huge opportunities for people um, to essentially outsource some of the stuff that would be really specialized, you know, the audio engineering or the HTML and still get involved in something different that sort of broadens the horizon. So I think we're in a good, a pretty good, good time for that sort of thing. And lastly... This this is something I wish I had written about a little bit more uh, in the book. I only put it in a footnote, so I'm I'm kind of thinking of things that I'm going to add, expand upon when I eventually add an afterword for the paperback. Um, and maybe it'll be this 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 thing called talent based branching. So this is a program in the army that I only mentioned this footnote that has to do with match quality and 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 mentoring. Talent based branching. You you have roped me in. Okay. Um, so long story short. The army, uh, its traditional structure was for its very, you know, people it identified as high potential future officers and leaders was basically say, here's your, here's your career track, get up or out, right? And that, that worked okay in the industrial economy, but then now we have an economy that has a lot more lateral mobility for people who can engage in kind of problem solving and knowledge creation and those things. And so starting in the nineties, the army started absolutely hemorrhaging the people that identified as the highest potential future officers. And first they threw money at people and the, the people who were uh, going to stay anyway took it and the ones who were going to leave anyway left. And that was a mere half a billion dollars of taxpayer money down the drain. Didn't change retention at all. And then they started having more luck with programs like talent-based branching, which instead of saying, here's your career track, go up or out, they take this officer, they pair them with a coach, 
and they say, try this career check a little bit. Your coach will help you reflect on how it fits your interests and your abilities. Then try another one, another, and, you know, two others. And you'll keep doing that process of reflection at each stop. And that's how we'll triangulate a better fit for you in your work. And that reduced the rates of quitting the army for these higher potential officers in a very important way. And I think that's a, a reasonable analogy to what we're talking about, that if you can you know, make some investment, even if it gets them a little bit behind early on in coaching someone to where they better fit, I think the, the army's program is sort of proof of concept that they will be a lot more likely to stay and a lot more less, less likely to quit, which is you know, akin to grit and burnout and all these other issues. Here's what I would, here's how I would respond. Yes. For my profession of medicine, we do something like that where medical students do all of the specialties. We do get the opportunity to rotate through all of the specialties. The idea being it makes sure you get at least a taste of what all of these different things will look like, but it also ensures that you will hopefully have a broad enough scope to make the right career choice for you. The mm -hmm. variable that is frequently missing is what you described, that coach that's kind of shoulder to shoulder with you to reflect so you can definitely make the right decision. But I would submit to you that we're doing that and yet we're losing our workforce further down the road. They've already mm -hmm. made the choice. They've already gone through that talent-based uh, talent based branching, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They've gone through that process. They've made the selection with agency. They get to pick what they want. They go forward. It's down the road that we start to lose people. And when I say lose, it's because they go into something different. It's because they leave the profession entirely. Medicine, unfortunately, is plagued with physician suicide. We lose people and we lose people tragically. And it's bad for the physician community. It's bad for the medical community. And it's bad for population care. We have variables somewhere in there with this idea of specialization, diversification of interests, and that match quality. It's it's maybe it's a little bit further downstream for us. Yeah, I think that wouldn't be surprising. And I should say one thing that does not apply to the army is that when they're choosing between these career tracks, they're going to get paid the same, basically. Okay. Um, so there's not much incentive to choose uh -huh. based on that, which is different for medical specialties. Yeah. Um, but I do think that, that we should think about this as an ongoing kind of thing. Cause that's, that's why I wrote about this, this psychological finding, the end of history illusion. You know, this is this finding that we all recognize that based on our experiences, we've changed a lot in the past, yeah. you know, even our values, the way we want to spend our time, kind of friends we like, all this stuff. Uh, and then we say, well, okay, but I'm not, but now I'm, now I'm pretty much done. Right. And we do that at every time point in life. We say we change a lot in the past, but then we underestimate how much we're going to change in the future. And the time of fastest personality change in your whole life is from about age 18 to the end of your 20s. And that's probably when a lot of people are going through an important part of this process. Almost um, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so in some ways, you're picking for someone that you don't yet know. Wow. Right. Not to mention for a work environment that you can't really yet conceive. Wow. Um, yeah. And so I think the idea that that there's like one selection period, better than none, um, but those aren't going to be the same people down the line. Yeah. And so not only one are they maybe, you know, are there all the influences of, of kind of the technology that we talked about, um, but also maybe not everyone wants to kind of get narrow and error over their whole life that might not satisfy them. They also change. And if there are no opportunities for them to adjust to that change – uh, I think that's I think that's a problem. 
So you pursued a career in the physical sciences. That's what you got your master's degree in. Mm-hmm. Where in the branch point was medicine for you? At what point did you say, I don't want to be a doctor? Or did it never even pop up for you? Like literally you mean a medical doctor? Yeah. It popped up for me later, honestly. Um, the I One of the reasons I left science and, and got into writing was specifically because I wanted to write about sudden cardiac death in athletes. Uh-huh. Uh, so I had a training partner who dropped dead at the end of a race. Oh he was uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, yeah. He had, you know, he was one of the top ranked guys in his age group in the country. And, you know, I kind of wondered how could this happen, right? And our local paper said, oh, heart attack. And I'm like, it just dawned on me. I don't even know what that means for someone that young and healthy to have, like, what is heart attack, you know? And eventually I, I, uh, his family signed a waiver allowing me to gather up his medical records. You know, it turned out that he had this kind of textbook case of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and instead was getting diagnosed with like asthma and these various other things for symptoms. Um, but like if someone had taken a good family history, this would have been obvious. Yeah. Um, but that never happened. I mean, he was a, you know, first guy in a family of Jamaican immigrants who was going to go to college. Like they just didn't have good family history. And I decided I want to write, merge my interests in sports and science and write about that. And I wanted to do it for a broad audience, not for people like me who were buying like scientific American or whatever with their disposable income. And so I targeted sports, you know, I'd grown up reading sports illustrated. So I targeted sports illustrated for that. And that's in fact what I did. And when I was getting interested in sudden cardiac death in athletes, uh, I talking to all these cardiologists. I for sure wanted to become a cardiologist. Uh, so th- this was sort of a later thing for me. It, it came out of once I had already transitioned out of science and into writing. Then wow. I started thinking about maybe I'll come back yeah. and, and and become a cardiologist because I was getting so interested in some of those things. But you know, ultimately decided it 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 was uh, I, I wasn't sure about it, and I kind of wanted to keep experimenting. And that led to some other roads. So. But then you still have this entree, right? You have this mixture of collaborators that you can now access. They'll you, they'll help you be a better writer. They'll help you be a better journalist. You have that range, right? I keep circling back to your book because it, it resonated. You can connect with them and say, hey, I have a question about topic X. I have a question about topic Y. And they'll collaborate with you because they want to. It's fun. It's exciting. We all learn. We get better that way. And and I can get good critical feedback too, right? Like yeah. I think if you're gonna if you're gonna write enough about science and medicine, you you, be, you better be. I think you should be in the mindset of something you write is going to turn out to be wrong based on later research, yeah. right? And yeah. and so you better not be. I, I think writers have a tendency to get too attached to things that they've written just because they wrote them, and you need to be ready to update your your mental models um, down the line and not be not be scared of doing that. Yeah, uh, and. You know, I think a lot of writers like the pace is so quick online that they they often don't end up getting uh, productive. Like they'll they'll get criticism, that's for sure. Like online, but it won't be productive. And so I, I think I have a good network of people who, if I do frame something wrong or something like that, who can reach out to me and we're we have a relationship where they can say, "Look, I, you know, I think there's some things you need to learn about this or that." Um, and that's a great thing to have because that means you know if if I screw something up. I think I have a much better chance of learning from it because of that that network that I've sort of cultivated over time and people who I trust to, that, that they want to give me productive feedback and they trust that I can take it the right way. And I think that's just something that's really undervalued um, and, and it's been really helpful for me. I think that that's an incredibly important mindset to have. I will submit to you that as time goes by, and I think you are either in the midst of or have finished your book tour, you're going to have lots of people with lots of really good ideas of what you should write next. I'll just add mine. 
(laughs) (laughs) You've got a chapter on it. You've got a really robust network around it. I would submit that your eye and your view, your worldview, your perspective on writing for, with an writing accountably and writing from the perspective of of depth and breadth and inclusivity, I think would serve the profession of medicine really, really well. I think you would find it a very interesting place to spend some time. So that being said, you'll write what you'll write. You're going to write a lot of great stuff going forward. But in that milieu, I think you could really find something interesting. I appreciate that. And that's especially because, I mean, you're obviously very open-minded about it because I do understand I'm totally self-conscious and lose a lot of sleep about when I come into someone else's profession. It's sort of like, who the heck am I, you know? Um, but but maybe I just hope that sometimes those outside eyes can can also be helpful, not just annoying. Uh, and if I do decide to do that, I will come barking up your tree for or to bounce some thoughts around. There you go. Um, I was just in this conversation, you've done that. Right. And I think I've had some people on this show as well, sort of change my view of physicians resist outside people wanting to contribute and learn and engage that we actually really thirst for it, especially my generation and the generations that are a little bit younger than me. Mm. I welcome it. I'm a physician leader, just like any, you know, there's lots of us, but I welcome it. And that's what helps us to get better. And it allows us to be better at the bedside, better with our teams, better leaders. And so I think you'd find a a warm welcome. I mean, and I I find the, I find the, the medical world fascinating. Totally. Um, Like I said, I think it's an objectively cool job, but um, (laughs) I I will say after both of my books, my, my mindset at this close to them, you know, now it's been out for, um, you know, about two months. Uh, is right now I'm in the phase of never writing another book. And, and here's where, and this relates to the, I was telling this to this, I, I sort of keep a, a statistician, I don't want to say on retainer, but okay. kind of like while I'm working on the books and, and basically just for, if I'm going through the messes of a study that he'll like take my call and talk it over with me anytime I want to. Um, I love it. And I was talking to him the other day, not, not for work stuff, just kind of catching up. And I was saying, yep, never writing another book, just like I said last time. And he said, okay, so you know, in chapter five, you wrote about uh, Kahneman and Tversky's outside view, right? So this is this is the um, instead of focusing on the details of a problem at hand, you do a better job of of predicting what will happen if you zoom out and look at other structurally similar cases and sort of what was the base rate, what happened over time, instead of just trying to make a decision based on all the specific details of the case in front of you. And so it's like, you know, if you're going to do home renovations, instead of saying like, well, here's exactly what we need and here are the people that we have working on it, you should go look at like what the costs and and deadline, you know, how, how far over deadline it was for like all, all of your friends' houses and say, it's probably going to be similar to that instead of focusing on the details of yours. Um, and so in my case, he said, okay, let's take the outside view here. You're saying you're never going to write another book. Um, how many people who aren't that old, whose first two books turned out to be bestsellers, never go on to write another book. And I said, Okay, I guess if we take the outside view, I'm probably going to write another book. But right now, on the inside view, I yeah. don't feel like I'm going to write another book. But but the outside view I know is a better one. So while I emotionally feel like I'm not going to write another book, all the objective evidence suggests right. I'm going to. And it'll come, right? It'll come when when you're ready. Um, yeah. I will I will happily volunteer to be your hospitalist slash podcaster on retainer. So okay. you, you, you have, I'm, I'm there. I, I'd love to amplify ideas, contribute, argue that it's, it's, it's such good stuff. You have been incredibly generous with your time. 
the book is fantastic. Uh, we can find it online. We'll have links in the show notes. You're very active on Twitter. It's a great place to follow some of the stuff that you're doing at David Epstein. This was a total treat. I really appreciate the time, but I, I also really appreciate the mindset you've applied, not just to the book, but to conversations like this, because it allows all of us to expand our tool set. And that's valuable. So for all of those things, this was really great. And thank you. No, I really appreciate it. Feelings mutual. I love the mindset and really enjoy the conversation. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.